If it's your first time or one of your first visits to our church, I want to explain to you that we are in a chronological teaching series that over the course of this year, with a break in the summer, is going to take us across the whole Bible. Uh, if you're participating in this fully, you're reading the Scripture during the week, you're meeting with a small group to discuss it and apply it and live it out together, and then on Sundays I'm taking at least a portion of that reading and I'm doing my best to span a lot of that Scripture and explain to you the central idea of why God explained Himself to us that way. And one of the fascinating things about this is, since we have two services and the, the demographics a little different between each of them, I ask questions like the one I'm about to ask you, and I get sometimes startling different answers depending on which service I'm in, okay? Here's today's question of living celebrities, important people, famous people in, in, in the world, who would you most like to meet? We could wave a magic wand over you, give you access to anyone currently alive on earth. Who would you want to see? There's just a tremendous amount of mumbling and I'm not getting anything uh, up here. Someone with courage. Clint Eastwood. Okay. <laughs> All right. See, I told you the differences were startling. First service said Billy Graham. Here we get Clint Eastwood. Uh, Anybody else? Okay. I got Clint Eastwood and Jimmy Fallon. And somebody said Greg Biggins, but I can introduce you to Greg Biggins right after the service. That's... Uh, He's a, big, he's a big deal, but, uh, but he, you, do, you do have access. Now, here's the follow-up question. That person you thought of, whether it was Clint Eastwood or Jimmy Fallon or somebody better in your in own individual opinion, how do you like your chances for actually meeting that person? You call their office and say, you know... Pastor Bruce had an interesting question. It got me thinking of all the people alive on earth. Clint, I'd love to meet you the most. Could I, uh, I'm not far. I'm down in, in Huntington Beach. You're up in Carmel. Could I drive up uh, tomorrow and uh, grab you a cup of coffee with you? What do you think your chances are of getting access to Clint? Nil, right? Jimmy Fallon has people who have people who have people. You're not getting to Jimmy Fallon either. That was brought home to me earlier uh, in, in, this, in this month, a few days ago. I tried to get a meeting with an important person. Maybe three people in the room would know who he is. He's not that big of a deal, but in his world, in my world, he's a big deal. So I just wanted an hour of his time. That took half a dozen emails, three phone conversations, one assistant, and one month of time to, to broker. And then finally... I sat in front of the, and I'm not mocking, he's a, he's a great man, an important man, and we talked for an hour, and precisely at the hour he said, thank you so much for coming in, I've enjoyed spending time with you, Bruce, I have to go on to my next commitment. I said, you bet, absolutely, sorry, don't throw me out, and I'm happy to leave, thank you for your time, and there's this problem of access and if you read the scripture this week in Exodus, that's one of the things that looms in this difficult passage. God is distant. God is very, very, very separate from the people he's addressing. 
What's going on here? Again, we're going through the Bible, so we have the privilege of seeing the big picture. Please understand what's happening. God is continuing His purpose and His promise to His people. Nothing has changed in His plans. God has not forgotten His purpose for Israel. The upper story, God's story, who is writing history, is continuing to write the lower story of the individuals and the families and the nation of Israel. He has brought them out of Egypt and He has left one of the great empires of the world, a literal smoking, smoking, water-soaked ruin. And they're free. For the first time in over 400 years, people are free to worship God, and He addresses them, and this is where we begin to see the separateness of God. And have you ever been in a situation, I hope not, especially with your doctor where he tells you it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets any better? Aren't those encouraging words? Listen, this is really, 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 really going to be tough for a long time before it gets better. I need to tell you as we dive into the Bible, this is one of those stories. It's going to be harder, it's going to be darker, it's going to be tougher, it's going to be harder to understand, and you're going to feel the distance that this passage communicates, and it's going to be harder for you and harder for me before it gets better, but it does get better. There is grace at the end of the story, but God has a point to make first, and this is how He began to address His people Israel. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They, say it, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Notice that. He went alone. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here's the point. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There's a phrase that is actually hard to get your mind around. God said to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What in the world does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? And what's the deal with this world holy? We have some cultural distance between our day and what's happening here. The idea of the priesthood, for instance, is in very low esteem in the United States. I have a friend who can't hardly have a conversation without making a joke about a priest. And I'm sure there's a similar vein of jokes about pastors, but I'm waiting to hear those. What does a priest do? A priest is someone who represents God to people and who brings people to God. He's an intermediary. And what God is saying to Israel is that they will represent God to the whole world. That he made the whole world, but for them, he wants them to be a whole nation, a royal priesthood. A people who individually and collectively represent the character and the goodness and the mercy and the holiness and the justice of God, that they are going to be very different from the nations around them. And they were, at least when they didn't become idolatrous and start acting like the people around them. 
Israel is going to represent God to the world, and therefore Israel must be holy because God is holy. And this is kind of the big biblical, theological, doctrinal teaching nugget of the day. The foundational fact of the universe is this, God is holy. As a prominent theologian said, when we read across Scripture, we find that in the presence of God, there are spectacular, awesome beings who are continually saying to God and about God that He is holy, holy, holy. They are not saying that He is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or hope, 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 although He is all those things. The Bible says that God is the God of all comfort. He is the God of hope. He is the God of peace. All of those things are true about God, but the most foundational thing that is true about God is that He is holy. It's not even one of His characteristics. It's who He is. And maybe you've been going to church for a long time, but you've never even heard anybody say it quite like that. I'm not special. I don't have any particular insight into the Bible. This is, we have a huge cultural gap between ourselves and what God said about Himself. Because the word holy in our culture is hardly ever mentioned in anything but a mocking kind of joking way, right? Think of phrases that you know in common parlance. I'm not talking about inside church in a worshiping community. I'm talking about just out in modern day mainstream world. What are phrases where the word holy shows up? Holy cow. Okay. Holy Joe. We call people, if people are a little too stuck up for us religiously, we say that they are holier than, holier than thou. None of these things are complimentary. All of them seem to say that holiness is just a little strange. And maybe not necessarily anything you should be, and if you are, it's certainly not going to make you popular. But God is holy. What's it mean? Here's the fundamental root meaning of the word holy in the Bible. Holy means something that is set apart. It literally means when we say that someone or something is holy, we literally mean that it is a cut above, that it is in a class all its own. In other words, the idea of holiness is separateness, and that's what makes people uncomfortable. God is holy. Israel understood this. That's why after the Exodus event, after the Red Sea, this is what they sang on the other side of the water. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's a rhetorical question. God, who is like you? Answer, no one. There is absolutely no one on earth like you. You have competitors among the Egyptians, but we've seen their false gods humiliated and exposed as the superstitions they are. There's absolutely no one like you. You are majestic in holiness. If we take that in its literal meaning, Lord, you are majestic in your separateness. You're just in a class all of your own. You are not like us. And when you read this passage, if you read through the portions of Exodus that we were reading together as a church family, you're going to see that separateness in everything in Exodus. The chronological reading that we're doing actually took us through some of the easier parts, but have you ever tried to read Leviticus? And everything is regulated. Diet and dress, 
the way hair is to be worn, the way work is to be done, the way garments are to be knit together. It's all spoken of. Why? Because God wanted His people in everyday life, every day to remember that there was no one like Him. None of those things, as I'm going to show you, had the ability to bring them into a saving relationship with God. They could not have peace with God by keeping all of those regulations. They failed time and time again. In fact, that's why the Old Testament sometimes can be discouraging reading. I was reading the testimony of a young woman in a, in a small church up in, in the Northeast who, not knowing any better in her search for God and having no one to guide her, just decided to read straight through the Bible. And by the time she got to the end of the Old Testament, she had along at that point made friends with a Christian. And she said, man, this is really dark. And he said, yes, exactly. Keep reading. The light is coming. That's why the Bible is structured the way it is. It's a long introduction to the grace, the goodness, the mercy of Jesus. But the foundational fact of everything, and this will never change, and it cannot change, is the holiness, the separateness of God. The holiness of God is seen in everything He says and does. And in our reading, we saw that in two notable places. First of all, His law, the things He told Israel to do, the way they were supposed to live. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you're a little familiar with the Bible, what am I beginning to read? What do we call these? These are the Ten Commandments. There is much more. In fact, as I'm going to tell you, Moses is going to go to God and spend 40 days with him hearing more, and the people are going to despair that he's ever coming back. There's so much more to say. But this foundational revelation tells them in ten sentences how they are to behave and how are they to relate to God and to each other. The first four address their relationship with Him. The next six to make ten talk about the way they relate. Um, the first four to God, the next six to one another. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's a big commandment. We see the cultural distance. We see the distance in our spirit to his. The name of God in contemporary America is more of an exclamation and sometimes a curse than anything else. God is saying in the Ten Commandments, I'm separate from you. I am other than you. I'm a cut above. I'm in a class of my own. When you speak of me, use my name reverently. Do not use my name in vain. He told the Israelites to set a whole day aside. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to keep it separate. Six days you shall labor and no 
and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This word keeps reoccurring. It's separate, it's different, it's other. And now in the the part of the commandments that we can more easily access because they have to do with how we treat one another, let's take these last six commandments and use it for the purpose it was intended and measure ourselves by what God told them to do, shall we? That was the most unresponsive uh, (laughs) return glance I ever got. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. Can I be really personal? Have you always honored your mom and dad? I haven't. I've sworn at my father. And he caught me. You shall not murder. Boy, here's one I can keep. So far, so good. Then I meet Jesus, and Jesus said that it's written, do not murder, but if you have anger in your heart for your brother. You're angry enough with him to call him a fool. You've committed murder in the heart. You shall not commit adultery. And for a lot of people, that actually brings up some terrible feelings because they have. And many of us can say, well, I'll check the box on that one. And then you meet Jesus again, and he says, it's written, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if anyone looks on a woman to lust for her in his heart, he has committed adultery in his heart. Well, the advent of the internet has made almost everybody I know an adulterer at heart. It gets awfully dark. Not because of God, but because of my behavior. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here's one for Orange County. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. (laughs) The commandment is going to go on to say, don't covet, don't desire for yourself anything that God has given your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. If I'm very honest, I stand accused by every one of these commandments. Are the people getting it? Yes, I think they are. Look at their response. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, if we take the Bible seriously, and these are historical events, and God is choosing in this time in history to show up and explain Himself this way to actual living people, we have to take this account to heart. Because when they had an unvarnished, unfiltered look at who God was, it made them afraid. They saw the separateness, and they didn't run toward it, they they shrank back. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And here's the point of all this. If 
this is getting hard for you and I'm not making sense to you or you just feel kind of repulsed by the whole thing. Here's why this is in Scripture. This isn't good advice. This is a perfect standard. We have so much cultural and spiritual distance from what God said in His Word that there are actually Christian pastors, and this has been happening for years, who are actually rewriting literally the commandments as promises or blessings or wisdom for life. Yes, keeping these commandments it brings blessing and shows wisdom, but commandments are commandments. They're a standard. And here's the trouble with standards. Standards cannot save you. They can only show you where you have failed to meet them. Some of you have heard this story before, but indulge me. I really had this come home to me when I was newly married to my very patient wife, Sharice. And I drove then and now... I drove kind of a clunker of a car. And this was an 89 Golf that, well, I bought transmission fluid by the case at that point in its life, causing a cashier to say once, dude, get it fixed. And I'm like, well, do you want your company to make money or not? I'll, uh, I'll see you next Monday. And, you know, we just kept pouring fluid into this thing. So I had to make a trip to my grandma and knowing that my old beater of a car wouldn't make it, I rented a car. And we're going to drive from Odessa, Texas, I believe it was, or Midland, I don't remember, up to my grandma in Amarillo up in the Texas Panhandle. Ever been there? My apologies. Okay, that's where I'm from, but seriously, you just lose the will to live driving across uh, that, that particular part of Texas. But I've got a good car for the first time in ever. And it's one of these big old American boats with far more engine than it deserves to have. And I am flying. And my wife, who is also raised in that area, she knows that outside of Lubbock, there's a very famous speed trap. And she's telling me, Bruce, remember the speed trap. And I'm giving her kind of a slightly politer version, but not really of woman let a man drive. Okay? <laughs> now, I'm just reporting to you. I'm not recommending uh, that approach. It didn't go well, as you're about to find out. And this is Christmas Eve, and I am flying to get home to Grandma's. And there was a Texas Highway patrolman out on the highway, and apparently he didn't appreciate having to work Christmas Eve. He must have been new in the department. And he got in behind me and turned on his lights and turned on the siren, and after all kinds of horrible physical things happening within me and psychic problems as well. I pulled over. And here's how you know you're getting a ticket in Texas. When the man says he walks to your car very slowly after taking about 10 minutes to glare at you through his windshield, he walks up to you and he says, Sir, are there any medical emergencies I should be aware of in your vehicle? Now, let me translate. That means unless someone is bleeding to death inside the car, I own you now. And I nearly got arrested by saying my heart stopped when I saw your lights, officer. But instead, I just kind of stammered out a, no, sir. And then he said, sir, would you step out of the vehicle, please? Would you accompany me to my cruiser? Oh, man, I'm getting arrested, you know? Thankfully, I wasn't, but he made me sit in the passenger seat 
the front and he said, sir, this is the XR9000 idiot buster radar. He didn't call it that, but that's kind of the implication of the, his tone of voice. And he said, sir, are you aware of the posted speed limit in this highway? It's lower, isn't it, sir? <laughs> said, yes, it is, sir. It's 55 miles an hour. Okay. He said, now, sir, can you read my radar screen and tell me the number that you see there? <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I can. Would you tell me what it is? I mean, he's really leading me through this. He's laying it on thick. I said, it's, it's 89. <laughs> now, here's the point. There was a standard. I failed to meet it. I crossed the boundary. The standard cannot save me. It can only show me where I've failed. It can only show me where I've gone too far. And it had this remarkable effect, and I think that was his point, because I think he could tell just by looking at me, cops have this ability to size me up and know just how stupid and arrogant I was being that day. What the standard does is it shuts you up when you don't meet it. That was the point of leading me through it and having me sit there and having me look at the sign on the side of the highway and compare it to the number on his radar screen. The standard could not possibly begin to save me. It only showed me how I'd failed. It only showed me the distance between what the state of Texas commanded and what I had chosen to do. And that's the way it is with the law of God. And there are churches all over the world telling people, this is what God has said, do this and live, and they can't. And it feels like what it actually is, a terrible burden that is never enough. And people who honestly try to meet the law of God, if they're sincere and they get it, they feel crushed by it. And people who don't get it become very, very proud because they think they're meeting the standard when in what they're actually doing, and maybe you've had this conversation with the CHP, you don't deny the standard, you just point at somebody else who's doing the same thing. I'm just keeping up with traffic, sir. Yes, as an officer once told me, that's true, but right now I'm talking to you, and again, the standard shut me up. That's what the standard does. That's the point. The holiness of God is seen in everything that he says and does. Nobody except Jesus himself was ever able to keep the Ten Commandments. And God doesn't grade on a curve. His holiness, his separateness, his perfection means that his standard defines perfect. And he invites people to live in relationship with him based on perfection, and we can't make it. Another instance of this holiness is seen in our reading is his sanctuary, which came, became the famous tabernacle of Israel. God spoke to Moses and said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And if you took the time to read that and the rest of the Bible that is not included in the Scripture readings that we're doing, you see very meticulous patterns, very specific materials, very exact measurements. Nothing is left to chance. What is the point of all that? The point is to reinforce this. God is holy and He must be approached on His terms. Now see, there's a spiritual truth that has to be captured there if you're going to have the life and the wisdom and the salvation that God intends for you. 
Everybody understands when dealing with other people, especially important people, that they must be approached on their own terms. You try to approach one of those celebrities that you just mentioned, you try to barge in tomorrow, you're going to get yourself arrested. You can't just walk in. And we understand that amazingly well amongst ourselves. What a great spiritual deception it is that we can approach God in any way, under any terms that we said. It's not so. Don't get me wrong. As you're going to see, access has been provided, but it's by the terms and the love of God. Because the foundational fact of the universe is that God is holy, and here's the problem. And we've already identified it, and I've already told you a couple instances, though I've made light of them. God is holy, but people are sinful. It's one of the spiritual, a snapshot of spiritual deception that the very terms that define our natural relationship with God before grace steps in and He does the work, holy and sinful, those are the very terms that our culture mocks. Where holiness is mocked and sin is a joking matter. See, God had called Moses up to Himself and He spent 40 long days there and it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they've heard the law and they've said, yes, we will do everything that God says. But just about six weeks later, this is what is happening. They say to Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, Aaron is Moses' brother and he will become the high priest of Israel. He's been invited to participate and to lead spiritual treason. I mean, how quickly people forget. Hey, Moses, we, we remember him, but we don't know what happened to him. Aaron, we need, some, we need some gods we can put our hands on. We're not sure what's going on with Moses. Would you please make us some gods? Aaron said to them, take the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. Now what's happening here? This is old school Egyptian religion. Egyptians loved cattle because they represented power and strength and their sustenance. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, now what do you think the future high priest of Israel should do here? I mean, he's already too far gone, right? He should have quieted that down immediately. But when Aaron sees it, he does this. He built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that last little fascinating phrase, rose up to play, Hebrew scholars are still divided on exactly what that means, but I think it's safe to say that that means that's the, most, that's the wildest, most wicked party you've ever seen. They went straight toward idolatry, and Aaron said, let's dedicate our idol to God and bring some offerings to him. And it's a mess. 
And the people who have just heard from God in such visible, spectacular ways, they're already far from him. Moses returns and says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Now watch this. You're about to see one of the great blame-shifting moments in Bible history. And we all do this. This is in every human heart. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and what? (laughs) Out came this calf. I mean, it's astonishing. It's subtle, and then it gets ridiculous. Moses, you know how they are. And you were gone. And they came to me, and you know how stubborn and insistent they can be, and there's an awful lot of them, and they're a little scary. So all I did was I took some jewelry, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. You know, and I've wondered even this morning, why is this story here? And I think this is the point. In the presence of a holy God who speaks the universe into existence, who has literally no competition, he is so much in a class of his own, this is how absurd my rationalizations and spiritual excuses look to him. God, I've just, I've just, I was just kind of going, and then then this happened. No, everything that God does, everything that God says in this book represents his holiness. Here's the foundational fact. God is holy, but people are sinful, and they need, therefore, an intercessor. When I went to establish my meeting with the important man, I called a friend first. And when I talked to the secretary, one of the two times I talked to the secretary, I pointed out every possible kinship, relationship, friendship, and history that I had ever had that could connect me to this person to make him willing to see me. If you want to see someone who is in a class separate from yours, that's what it takes, that's what you do. God is no different. And he is not arrogant, he is holy. He himself knows who he is. He knows his magnificence better than any of the people who address him. And what we see at this stage in the life of Israel is that Moses is the intercessor. Aaron has already going to be exposed as a man who will quickly fall off the radar. Moses himself is going to show himself to be a flawed, fearful, sinful leader. We already know that about him, but God, even in these early stages, is teaching Israel a lesson. I can only be approached on my terms, and you cannot come on your own. You need cover. You need an intercessor. God was so upset of this idolatry that judgment came among the people by their own hand, and thousands died. In one of the most striking passages of Scripture, and it's one of those hard things to read, God says to Moses, I'll take them out and start over with you. And Moses, the great intercessor of Israel, says, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Outcome. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Watch the intercession continue. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. There is no tabernacle yet. But there is a place where people can meet with God. And Moses is the one who is bringing God's word to them at this point. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand, look, at his tent door. They didn't go to the meeting place that God had established. They stood at the door of their own home and they would watch Moses, it says, until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What's the point of all this? Plain English. No one can approach God on his own terms. Not you, not me. Not Moses. No one. No one can be good enough for God. And maybe that sounds really countercultural to you and strange and what you think is a religious setting. Let me explain it to you. This church, our message is not a long list of rules so that you can be good enough for God. On the contrary, we're here to tell you you can't be good enough for God. No one can. The man addressing you is a sinful, selfish, inwardly driven man who only by the grace of God can understand the things he's trying to explain to you. No one can meet that perfect standard. This is what Paul later will explain. A man who busied himself as a Pharisee trying to keep the law later understood it and said, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Neither Moses nor Israel could ever meet God's standard. You cannot reach God on your own. You need someone to cover you. And remember I told you way back when this started that it was going to get really, really bad before it got any better? If you keep reading the unfolding story, finally, the failure stops. The darkness lifts. And Jesus shows up. Only Jesus can bring you safely to a holy God. Here's how John explained it. One of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life said, in the beginning was the Word. That's one of the titles of Jesus. It means He is the action of God. He is the cause of things. He makes things happen. He expresses who God is. All of that is tied up in that little title. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See the separateness? Look how absurd this is if I try to put my own name in this description. In the beginning was Bruce. And Bruce was with God. Does that make any sense to you? 
No, it's absurd. I'm not even going to read the next part because it's blasphemous. Nobody else fits that description except Jesus. He alone is the Son of God. He alone is perfectly holy. And John keeps explaining from an eyewitness perspective, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Things have reversed because of God's tenacious, sacrificial love. He spent the entire Old Testament telling people through everything right down to the way they dressed, I'm holy, you can't come close to me on your own terms, you have to approach me on my terms. And then in the New Testament, he says, you can't come to me, you've always failed, you've always strayed, you've always gone after your own idols, you've always come to me with these flimsy excuses, you cannot come to me, I am coming among you. John said the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That literally means he tabernacled. He set up his tent among us. And John reports as an eyewitness, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is holy and separate and yet near. Nearer that I can begin to tell you. That's why we're reading this. John the Baptist, one of those early eyewitnesses, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There's the holiness. There's the separateness. There's the Jesus in a class all his own. And then he goes on to say, John writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Read the last part of this with me. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, God. Moses gave the law. Everything Moses said, everything Moses commanded to be built, everything right down to the diet said, I'm here, you're far from me. He gave the law. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, so that when Jesus is on earth just before dying, he explains to his disciples just how close he came. Look, in John 14, it says this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. And what's it say there? We will make our home with him. You won't be building tabernacles anymore. You love me, you put your trust in me. And you will do what I say, and my Father, this holy God, who is thrice holy, whose nature is expressed by the repetition, holy, 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 He will love Him, and He and I, we, the Father and the Son, we will come to Him and make our home with Him. He's holy, but He's close. He's holy, but He's close. You could not reach His righteousness. So he came down and laid it down for you. The Bible explicitly says that when Jesus was 12 years old, he went home and submitted to his parents. Why does it say that? Because I didn't. Because I was a rebellious kid. Because I was a young man who would grow up to swear at his father. So Jesus obeyed his mom and dad. And he never looked at a woman with lust. And he never lied. And he never stole. And he kept the Sabbath. And he revered his father's name as holy because he knew better than anyone how holy it was and he lived all of that among us. And he laid it down in my place so that I could be accepted and that I could be loved and so that this impossibly holy, inaccessible, distant, set-apart class of his own God could come and live with me. 
with you. That's how much he loves you. That's the end of the story. That's the good news that this church preaches. You're invited, but you have to give up on yourself. You have to give up your religiosity. You have to give up your rule keeping. You have to humbly come to God and say, I get it. I won't make it. Please save me. And he will. Could I ask you to bow your head so you can take a moment to God and yourself? Can I ask you very directly if you have that relationship with him? If you don't, could I invite you with every ounce of sincerity I can muster to run to Jesus and to tell him right now, God, I can't make it. You're right. You're separate. You're other. I feel the distance. My conscience is telling me I'm not close to you. Please forgive me. Forgive my sin. Come make your home with me. He will. He has for millions. And Christian, if if this is familiar news to you and you know you're in the family and you know how much he loves you, my prayer for you is that you'll live in awe of his holiness and you will be astonished by his grace. That every time you sin and fail, you will remember that though that's done in the sight of a holy God, it's all covered by grace because Jesus himself is your intercessor. He's your cover. He's your payment. You can't begin to appreciate the grace of God until you see His holiness. And when you do understand how great that grace is, how much it covers, that's when you live worship. That's when you live obedience. That's when you live grateful. If you don't know Jesus, could I invite you to turn to Him right now and tell Him you're sorry? You, don't, you get it, you won't make it, but you want Him to cover for you and take you there? Before you do, just let us know that you've done that. That connection card is in the bulletin for people to signal their next spiritual steps. Let us know that God is drawing you, that you've cracked your pride and humbled yourself before Him and asked Him to save you. We want to rejoice with you because that's what He's done for many of us. Father, thank you for grace this big. This offering that our church will receive next, Lord, from money we've worked hard to earn, that's not a payment. That's worship. That's love. So that people will know your holiness and your grace, your majesty and your tenderness and your closeness. Lord, we give this to you, and I ask most for those who are struggling even right now with the decision, help them, Lord, take that next life-saving step and say to you, Lord, I am sorry. You're real. I'm holy. I'm sinful. Please forgive me. Give me the life of Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.